Screenless. Making a soundtrack. Opening scene and action. Hi, Gareth. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. Are we missing Tristan? Where's Tristan? Ah, well, he had to drop the TARDIS off at Quick Fit because <laughs> he tried to reverse the polarity of one of the time circuits and he left the handbrake on and it... Oh, yeah. schoolboy error. Schoolboy error. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's happening with him now? Uh, he... well, he's, he's on his bike. He should be here any minute, I think. Ah, I've seen some uh, Instagram photos of Tristan on his bike. Here he comes. Oh, here he is. <gasps> wow. God. <laughs> 50 mile round trip delivering pizzas. <laughs> delivering pizzas? Got to fill my spare time in, uh, in lockdown. Good man. Good man. So, what are we talking about today, chaps? Orchestration. Before we started this recording, we had a good old chimwag uh, about the difference between orchestration and arranging. Yes, we did. So what is the difference between arranging and orchestration? Well, orchestration is taking a musical idea and putting that through the orchestra. So you take what is the chords, the melody, any percussive elements you want, and write it out for an orchestra rather than just, you know, a piano. It can start on a piano, it can start on any instrument, but it's taking that idea and then passing that through the whole orchestra, I think. Yeah, that's a good explanation. <laughs> arranging, uh, from my point of view, I think arranging is taking a piece for a... Sp- and this is where you get this grey crossover. So taking a piece of music and arranging it for a specific band rather than orchestra. I think you could argue that orchestration is arranging and arranging is orchestration. It's probably more of a Venn diagram, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Yeah, there's crossovers in there, 100%. Definitely. I don't see orchestration as wholly just for the orchestra. You know, you could be writing a piece of music and think actually it could be synthesizer, guitar and whatever based and deciding what melody and which parts go to which instrument I consider orchestration but others might consider arranging. So I suppose for the sake of this series uh, where we're looking at the orchestral score the orchestrator is arranging the part. Huh, there you go, arranging yeah. the parts for the orchestra. <laughs> Am I wrong in that language? No. no. <laughs> is that a bit of the, the Venn diagram in yeah, the middle? It is a little bit, but I, th- I think that's right. Yeah, okay. Uh, this week, we are chatting with Alastair King. So, Tristan, give us a bit of background about Alastair and his work. So, he's worked on a variety of very high-profile projects, including Downton Abbey, The Martian. He's worked with Harry Gregson-Williams and Rupert Gregson-Williams. And he's basically one of the most in-demand orchestrators certainly here in the UK and I think it would be fair to say globally if he's working with Hollywood composers over in Los Angeles and yeah he's the go-to guy and a thoroughly nice chap with it indeed exactly indeed so Dan we need some facts about Alistair so Fandango 
Alistair studied music at the universities of Bath, Birmingham and Kansas. He has worked with many top Hollywood composers such as Hans Zimmer, Rupert Gregson Williams, Nick Hooper and Christoph Beck. He lived for six months in an old lighthouse on the Norfolk Broads with a chimpanzee called Captain Popsicle where they perfected a brilliant recipe for bouillabaisse. His wiki page states that he is 52 to 53 years old. Whilst working with Rupert Gregson Williams on Aquaman, the production insisted they stay in an underwater hotel. His favourite biscuit is a shorty, he has the Guinness World record for the least amount of skydives, his favourite colour is tartan, and given a pogo stick it can definitely jump higher than you can. In this interview there are certain words mentioned that we might need to explain to listeners who might not know what they mean. Uh, the first is MIDI, who wants to explain what MIDI is? Uh, well I think I did that last series but I'll do it again. Yes you can. Musical Instrument Digital Interface, it actually stands for the protocol rather than the, the way that Alistair was using it. So we'll just gloss over that for the time being and we'll talk about the way Alistair was using it. Alistair's use of the word MIDI meant the note information which was used inside the computer. So it's how long a note is and where it is on the keyboard. Okay. Tristan, would you like to explain what a door is? As, as in the, the computer program? <laughs> Open the window, shut the door. No, give over. <laughs> a door is a digital audio workstation uh, and includes programs such as Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, uh, basically, it's a bit of software that enables you to write music into it, record audio, play um, MIDI into it. Would, would you say that's a good way of describing it? I think, yes. Yeah, yeah. very good. Very good. A uh, couple of orchestral terms now. Pizzicato. That's when you, on a string instrument, you pluck the string rather than bow it. And arco. That's a return to being bowed again. Yes, it is. Yeah, that was it. So when those words come up, you'll now know what they mean. Don't forget that there is a glossary on the website uh, with all of these terms in. So should you want to look anything up at any point, just head over to the website, www.makingasoundtrack.com, and there'll be a glossary there for you to look at stuff. Without further ado, shall we go behind the scenes and see what Alistair has to say? Let's do it. Hi Alistair, thanks very much for joining us today and let's dive right in, shall we? Are you able to just tell us a bit about the job of an orchestrator? The orchestrator, if I can boil it down into something as basic as possible, is to take the music the composer has written on the computer and to put it in a readable form for the players. And you would think, well, why would we actually need to do anything to it? The composer's already written it inside of the computer. Surely that's ready to go. But actually, there's quite a lot of translation process that requires someone to sort it out before it goes in front of the players for it to make sense. So, for instance, a composer will send me a file that's in Logic, and they've been using lots of MIDI information to get the notes down. And the MIDI will be the notes at the right time, at roughly the right speed and all of these sorts of things but my job to get it onto the page in a very precise form and a, a form that's readable so there's there's quite a lot of massaging that needs to be done before it's actually ready so you've received what you need from the composer what happens next well it won't be just a logic or a cubase file it will hopefully be an mp3 of the demo and when i say demo that varies very much in terms of how 
demo-y it is. Sometimes these things are programmed to an absolute fantastic level that's practically ready to go out. And other times it is uh, fairly rough. And so depending on that, then I have to make some decisions about how I translate that onto the page. So the next part really is, even possibly before I receive the file, is to talk with the composer about exactly what they want me to do with their music so that we can get the best result. And that conversation usually happens pretty early on in the process. What level of replacement there is, because some things that they're using in the logic file will actually stay within the logic file. There's no need for a real-life interpretation of it. It's a sound that's essentially synthetic by nature, and it's not going to be improved. In fact, they might love the sound particularly. That's, that's something the production loves. So there's no reason to change it in any way. And then we decide on the things that are to be replaced, how many instruments we're going to use to do that, and then go from there. Okay, so what common problems might you face when taking a, a MIDI file from a composer? Rarely are there real problems. They're usually just little hurdles you have to get over and navigate. Sometimes a file isn't quantized, and for anyone who isn't aware of the term quantized, it's essentially meaning that the notes are in a precise position on the grid. Imagine you have four quarter notes in one bar. Sometimes the MIDI information isn't quite on each beat. So then when it gets translated into the notation program that I use, which is Sibelius, it might not actually be exactly where you want it to be. And so the notation suddenly looks far more confusing than it really needs to be. So there's a level of tidying that needs to get done. Sometimes the files just haven't been labelled very well, in which case you just need to make sure it doesn't say MIDI 4, because what instrument is that supposed to be? Sometimes the MIDI files themselves, let's say the composer has played on a string sound, they've played it in a piano way. So they've used both hands together, sustain pedal. When that information gets translated into the notation program, it can be really confusing. It can be a whole jumble of notes. So it might be better before I try and do that to tidy it up, split it up into different elements. So that when I'm then working with the material, I've got a much better idea of the different layers that need to go on. It's like housekeeping, really, before you actually start your work properly, just to make sure that you're clear as to exactly what it is the composer's uh, doing within the demo. Yeah, I mean, that kind of tallies up with my experience. I mean, I've had experiences where composers have sent over MIDI files that would be, if translated directly, would be completely unplayable. Does that align with anything you've experienced personally? Yeah, sometimes you do get elements where they're creative level doesn't actually match the real world level but that's not necessarily a bad thing you just need to then think around it and maybe have the conversation with the composer you've written this instrument in this way now the real instrument couldn't actually do this do you want to keep it digital because you actually like the sound that it's making in the demo doing this idea or do you want to try and find some sort of way around it, either by splitting it between different instruments or perhaps doing some sort of overdubbing where we record it separately and then piece it together afterwards? So it's very much trying to find out what the composer expects of that moment as well. And you never know, it, it may well be a case that the director absolutely loves the sound that they've created there using that sort of impossible instrument, so to speak, in which case... Yeah, I could spend, you know, several hours making a substitution 
but it actually wouldn't be as satisfying or quite right for the production. So you just have to work out what the best solution is for that problem. You mentioned kind of the classic string ensemble two-handed patch. Are you kind of faithful to every single note that the composer sends you within the MIDI or are you kind of not afraid to drop and add to make the voicings fit where necessary? I've become more confident in, in the choices I make. So sometimes, yeah, some notes have to give just because it wouldn't translate in exactly the same way. You might find suddenly the voicing of the chord by just literally putting every note down weights the chord in the wrong way and suddenly a chord that seems balanced when it's just played as a piano chord, even though it's on a string sound, suddenly becomes really bottom heavy. And so the chord loses clarity and becomes quite muddy. So I would say, okay, what's the essential characteristic of that chord and what they're trying to do at that moment? In which case I would probably massage the notes slightly to make sure that it works well. So I'm not really changing the notes. What I'm doing is keeping the intention. And I think there's a fairly big difference there between if you're too faithful to the notes, you actually might lose the spirit that the composer's going for. And some composers will be more sketchy than others. It depends on the nature of the job, how bad the deadline is, because... As we know, the deadline is just terrible for many composers. They're working absolutely at the edge of the production run. And so they didn't have time to really consider every nuance. It's really get the idea down, get the spirit, get it approved. And then we have to go and we have to get it recorded. So if I'm aware of that circumstance, then I'm not going to be thinking, oh, this every... Mm. I don't have time to scratch my chin. I have to say, this is what's working. This is going to work when we go on. But ideally, we have a bit more time. Everyone has a bit more time to be considered and there can be more dialogue if I'm not sure of a moment and I can say, okay, 90% of that cue is fine, but there's this little moment here between bars 34 and 42. I'm finding this problem. I thought this could be a solution. What do you think? I usually will come up with some suggestions first to the composer before I approach them rather than go, I don't know what to do here. What do you want? And then they might actually say, yeah, A or B, or even, "Mm, I'm not sure. Give me a bit of time and I'll think about it and then come back to it. So if that kind of decision making is happening on lots of different cues, will you just go ahead and change it? Or are you having that dialogue with the composer? Because as you mentioned, they're under intense stress and pressure with these deadlines. And, you know, you don't want to be calling up the composer every two seconds, do you? So at some point you have to kind of just take it upon yourself. Sure. I think this is part of the developing a relationship with the composer is that after a while you know what their expectation is of you. And so in the beginning, you're sort of balancing the how much do I bother them with how much do I actually want to get this absolutely right so that it manages the situation. So after a while, then you realise, okay, this is probably what they mean. And then you can move forward and take these choices and by all means tell them towards the end on cues A, B and C. I've already done as we discussed earlier. And chances are, you know, you've made that executive decision and it's probably, hopefully, the right one and you can just move forward. So you don't want to be paralysed with the sort of indecision and, and worry about such things. You've just got to be able to say, we have to have this done in this length of time. And um, if you make the wrong choice, you put your hand up and say, I'm really sorry I did that. I thought it was the best. And if it's wrong, you just admit to it and fix it. In general, how much freedom would you say you have with regards to kind of adding parts and changing voicings? Um 
Not a huge amount of freedom. Generally, especially on the higher end projects, you know, the Hollywood mega budget things, the demos have gone through an extensive process of writing, rewriting, rewriting again. There's been an awful lot of people usually that it's got to be approved by, not just the director, but chances are a producer, executive producer, executive producer's nephew, the wife of the executive producer down the road, an awful lot of people, and of course, test audiences as well. You know, they do test screenings and and they'll sit there and they'll fill in forms about the music. So by the time it actually gets to me to orchestrate, an awful lot of people have had a lot of say and have made a decision about this is how we want the piece to be. Therefore, I'm really not going to change the nature of it very much at all. So it's keeping it as faithful as possible to that demo but at the same time making it sound better. What they really want is exactly that music, but somehow better without it being changed at all. And obviously just having real players on it elevates it hugely straight away. But it's really down to me to make sure that it's on the page and it's going to be clear to those players exactly what they're going to do so that when they play it first time through, it's already in really good shape so that everyone is recognising it as the music that everyone was happy with. And after version 23.5, you know, that's the golden one and that's the one we're going to move forward with. On other projects, again, it varies on the nature of it. Sometimes on television, there is a little more leeway for me to, as I say, change things slightly or or just, I hesitate to say make it better, but just make it polished, perhaps, in a way that there wouldn't be time to do for the composer themselves because they're under the gun. And is there a set way that orchestrators generally work with composers? Or do you find that each relationship is different? Yes, every relationship with each composer is slightly different. And At the beginning of the relationship, when you haven't worked with them before, it's very much trying to establish what they expect of you. And sometimes it is literally, here are the notes, just put them onto the page for me exactly as they are. With other ones, it's, okay, I've only had time to do this. Feel free to elaborate a little bit and put in things you think are tasteful or appropriate. And sometimes the composers don't know quite exactly what to say about that as well. They just, well, uh, um, they're not quite sure if they're not so experienced exactly what you're going to be doing for them. So it's trying to, without hassling them, but trying to find out what the best way forward is, what they really would like you to do rather than what they perhaps expect you to do just because, oh, well, I've never worked with an orchestrator before, so I, I really don't know. And they just hand it over with maybe they don't want to offend you or maybe they're just not quite sure of what to say so it it takes a little while to establish the relationship so that's often why you see composers working with orchestrators and, and other members on their team again and again because you develop after a while a shorthand so they don't have to keep explaining every time on a project to do a b and c and, and forgetting about d so if you can develop that good relationship then again that just saved them a level of potential stress and pressure again when they're at the sharp end of the production how other orchestrators work i don't know i think it is different from person to person there's never been two people that i've worked with that have ever been the same i think that's only natural really i don't think that just works with composers and orchestrators i'd say that works across the entire field we're all individuals so after you have worked with someone for instance yourself with someone like john lunn I can imagine you can kind of second guess almost everything that he does now having worked with him for such a long time which kind of nicely leads me into my next question which is you've worked on downton abbey the film and the tv series how did the process differ for you the television show i mean i absolutely love working with john 
which is why we've worked together many years. And I think he's pretty happy with the work I do as well. We just have a really good time working together. He's a fantastic musician and just lovely to work with. So I think that's definitely helped. So Downton Abbey, we weren't really sure to begin with how successful the series would be. It looked quite nice, little period drama, some good performances, and it looked like it was a good show. So we started off and we did what we did. And then suddenly this juggernaut just started rolling and rolling and gaining speed and momentum. Suddenly we found everyone was talking about it. We started off in the studio and I will often when I'm working with the players, talk a bit about the scene and what's going on and what we're trying to achieve because just the letters MF for Mezzo Forte don't really give you an idea whether it's a romantic scene or whether it's a scene of tension or stress or comedy. So sometimes a little bit of an insight into what we're about to play and and who's doing what can be quite helpful for the players. And when we began Downton Abbey, I was quite happily telling them about it. And by the time we got to about episode four because by then it had aired and started really generating some serious interest, I then had to basically say very little about it at all and couch everything in these very strange terms of, well, this person is doing a thing to another person that may or may not be funny. That's as much as I could do not to give away the plots. But the orchestra was sort of both happy and frustrated about that because they were fans of the show as well and they didn't actually want it spoiled for them. At the same time, they were fascinated to try and find out what was going on in it. So we started off with a pretty good size orchestra for a television. I mean, it's, it's high-end television drama. So the size of the orchestra we had was 10 first violins, 8 seconds, 6 violas, 6 cellos and 3 double basses. We'd have a cor anglais to begin with. Sometimes we'd have a vibraphone and sometimes we'd have a French horn. And then John would also play the piano part himself, but he wouldn't do that live during the session. He'd do that later. And that's a pretty good size string lineup. But Downton Abbey is a very sumptuous, expensive looking show. And so those numbers are good, but they're not quite enough. So my job was always to, and I'd even say this to the orchestra, look, this sounds really great, but can we just make it sound more expensive on the next take, please? So it's very much I was trying to orchestrate in a way to make a television score sound more like a film score in terms of the scale. So it was broad. And so when you hear the violins playing the tune, it never sounded thin. It always sounded a rich sound because the melody is something that your ear goes to first of all when you're listening to anything on on television or film. And then the other parts are less important. So it's always making sure everything was basically top loaded to make it sound as good as possible. And then when we came to the movie, we had budget suddenly. We had, I mean, it's not that we didn't have budget, but we had, uh, it was no longer television budget, but a film budget. And so we were able to double the number of players we had or almost double the number of players we had 16 first violins 14 second violins 12 violas 12 cellos and eight double basses the sound was fantastic I've got to tell you it's just like this wonderful bed of sound and if you watch the movie or buy the soundtrack and listen to it on any good speaker system you will hear a richness in string sound that is just fabulous if you're in love with orchestral instruments and the sound of strings playing together that's a soundtrack to listen to because it just sounds so rich And so it wasn't so much I was trying to then compensate and make it suddenly sound bigger than it was because it already was the right size. It was a slightly different emphasis because actually, as you've heard, 12 violas, 12 cellos and 8 basses is an awful lot on the low end. And so it was making sure that actually we didn't have an imbalance of sound so that everything became kind of muddy and bottom heavy. So we're able to have this rich bed 
but actually make sure all the violins were, were doing what they should be doing best. So it's a slightly different challenge, but one I absolutely reveled in. And how long did it take to orchestrate for the movie as opposed to the equivalent screen time on the TV series? I would say probably I thought it would be a little bit longer than the television series. So I can't remember exactly how long I'd do an episode in because actually Downton Abbey varied in terms of the amount of music very much. If you look at a Christmas special, then we will probably have quite a lot of music over the runtime. Whereas some of the episodes sort of mid-season, episodes three or four, there might only be, I think we once only had about eight minutes in an episode. So obviously the amount of time I would have done that easily within a day, whereas something if we had about 40 minutes, I probably would have taken three or perhaps four days. So I thought, well, okay, if I just double that, that will get me there for the movie. But it actually turned out I just needed a bit longer to do it. And I think maybe there were two factors. Number one, I had more strings to play with, but actually what I wanted to do was give it more consideration because I knew how to do the TV show. I knew what the sound was. By the time we've got to season two, everything's well established. And so you can do it quite quickly. Whereas we've just increased the size of the orchestra, but it's not an exact doubling. So I wanted to make sure, A, I got it right, because there was no way I wanted to not get this right. You know, it's a it's a, it's a series I've loved. I've loved being part of. It's a film that was going to give a huge amount of pleasure to a great number of people. So I really didn't want to mess it up. So I just found myself, it took me sort of about three times as long to do the cues. But it's just to make sure everything was absolutely right. And we weren't quite as up against it on that one. The post-production time seemed to be just about right. So I didn't feel too pressured that I just had to get something on paper and then out the door. And what's the feedback process from the composer on any given project? Again, that varies depending on the relationship you have with the composer, how much time they have. But for instance, on Downton, John really could do the whole thing himself if he had the time. He's completely competent on music notation and he knows really what his intentions are. So what I do is I do the work in Sibelius and when I think I've got a finished score then I'll send a PDF to him and then he'll just give me some notes about any changes or if it's major changes we might just speak on the phone to discuss them but generally it's just an email with a few lines on you know 6MO2 can you just double the cellos on bars 22 to 24 or something like that. By now we've got a pretty good way of working so As much as I don't want to second guess anything too much of him, I've got a good idea of his expectation when he gives me the logic file. And also the big advantage I have on doing something like Downton is a quick time video of what's going on. And if you can see the scene and hear the dialogue, I mean, that makes your job so much easier because you suddenly realise, okay, well, this is a romantic moment. Clearly, I have to make space for the dialogue, but then there's going to be this moment when they get together and they kiss and this is where we're going to go to the nice forte and and it's going to be a nice broad sound. It's when we get uh, Hollywood films to work on and because they are so careful about releasing any snippet of video that all I get is the MP3 demo. Now, often they've been programmed brilliantly, so they're really very very close to what they want but not really be able to see the scene in context does make you a little more hesitant when you're making the decisions about the dynamics and maybe the tone just because you haven't quite seen it and then you see it at scoring and then there might be a little bit more adjustment on the stand than you would if you've already previously seen it. And what happens once your work has been approved from the composer? What would the next steps be after that? Uh, Yes, then we've got to get it out of a computer. So at the minute, it's still been sort of locked in digitally and someone will actually have to print it out and put it in front of the players. So that's where the wonderful world of copyists come in. Depending on the score, if it's a Hollywood score, then I've literally just done the score in Sibelius and then I'll send it on and the parts will be prepared for me 
or for all of us, by the copyist and they'll print it out and they'll collate it all and put it on the stands in perfect order. On a TV show, usually the budget isn't quite as much, so the copyists generally will just print what I send them, so that means I will have to go into Sibelius and tidy up the parts myself. But actually I find that quite a useful, it's quite instructive because... You're so used to reading vertically when you're in Sibelius. You're looking at a bar and you're looking down, you're checking the harmony and how everything works. It's quite hard to see it as the players would see it, which is reading left to right as a single line. And when you start working on the parts, you see what they are going to see. And you suddenly realise that you've left pizzicato marking in and haven't gone back to arco when it's clearly an arco section, you know, 25 bars later. So it's a good way of, of checking your own work. It's also a good way of checking how well you've written for the instruments. Do they have some ridiculous leaps that they have to somehow navigate? Could you have made uh, essentially voice leading smoother so it will give an overall more pleasing effect? You know, they'll feel where to go rather than suddenly sort of compensating there on the seventh and then rather than going up to the tonic on the downbeat of the next bar, they've suddenly got this strange leap to the minor third of the next chord, which is an octave and a half away. Sometimes there are good reasons to do that, but other times it's usually a case of me as an orchestrator, I would need to think a little bit more carefully about that and maybe find a a more elegant solution. So it's a good way of uh, double-checking your own work before it goes off and gets printed. Absolutely. It's interesting what you said about kind of seeing it from left to right and filling in anything that's been missing. There have been times when there's just a, a dynamic marking missing somewhere and it's easy to put that in. Whereas if you were going to send that to a copyist, it's not their job really. You know, they don't know what your intention was. They're just in charge of formatting and tidying. So it's actually quite useful to be able to see that. Absolutely. And the copyists are right at the end of the chain. However much I'm complaining about lack of time, they're the ones who bear the worst brunt of it all because it usually is X hours before the session starts. And really, they're not going to have enough time to be able to go through with a fine tooth comb and think, well, maybe that should have had a dynamic marking there or something. They have to trust that you've given them uh, work that's up to standard. Now, sometimes mistakes will happen and especially under a deadline everyone is under pressure and things slip through the nets and copyists can actually remarkably catch things you think how on earth have you caught that but you're just very grateful they have so yeah i do i do find that process quite helpful though when i do get into the parts myself well alastair thank you so much for joining us today it's been a real pleasure been super insightful and uh, we'll see you soon oh it's been my pleasure Well, that was very nice. Wasn't it? We're now in the coda set. What, what does coda mean, by the way? Tris? It's basically the end, isn't it? It's the end. It's the end. Yes, it's a section for this podcast where we kind of reflect on what the guest has been talking about. I have been reflecting on the fact that for the Downton movie, there were a lot more strings. And it's, it's really prompted me to want to go and listen to the soundtrack again. Yeah, uh, it's... I- thought it was very interesting the difference between the two because Mm. as Alistair pointed out they wanted a very sort of high quality polished sound in the tv show anyway so even with a limited amount of players you know he he worked to get that kind of very polished sound out of the strings yeah and then having a movie budget a movie music budget to be able to properly then have a large string section and the differences between doing that you know not over egging the bottom end and things like that uh yeah i found that very interesting yeah i mean you wouldn't think that seven more 
violins could make such a big difference. But I mean, I was I was there for the recording and it was just, it sounded absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's basically a symphonic sized string section. I mean, I can't remember how many celli yeah. you said. Was it like 10 celli or something like that? It was... I made a note of them. Um, so it was 16 first violins, 14 seconds, 12 violas, 8 celli and 8 double bass. Yeah, so it was six more violins for the movie than there was for the TV show, which, like I say, doesn't sound an mm. awful lot more, but it, it really does add to that, especially that top line, the, the Downton theme. You know, it just sounds so lush yeah. when you've got a violin section playing that melody, just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and I, I know what he means about the bottom end because eight celli is a good amount of (laughs) celli, but eight double basses, blimey, that's a lot of double basses. Yeah, it really is. And there was only three for the TV series, which is interesting, and I would imagine they chose three because two double basses don't tend to blend well for some reason. There's probably some science behind it, but they they just don't sound good, two double basses. That's very interesting. People usually go yeah. for one or three rather than two. So odd numbers. Well, I think once you get up to like four, it doesn't make a difference. But for some reason, two, there's something to do with the phasing. Or mm. I remember somebody telling yeah. me ages ago, and uh, that's kind of the reason why you, you rarely see two double bases. It's usually one or three or more, obviously. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I was quite interested to hear him talk about the way he feeds back with composers and, you know, just being communicative with the composer. And, and just not being afraid to, to ask questions. Because I think when you first become an orchestrator, you you feel like you should just not necessarily know the answers, but you don't want to be bothering the, the composer every 10 seconds. But I think it's so important to get as much ironed out before the session. And like Alistair said, you know, the, the, the session time is the most expensive part of the whole process. So it's absolutely imperative to get everything sorted before the session. Yeah, I, it's interesting because that harks back to what Sagan was saying about having conversations about notes and the fact that somebody might go on for three or four paragraphs about something but not actually mention anything in you know really specific and actually it could just be one tiny change so it's about having those conversations so if you're unsure about it it's keeping the dialogue open so that you can get to the end result that you both want quicker rather than going around the houses several times which I thought is interesting. It's basically dialogue is key, isn't it? You know, yeah. keeping that keeping that communication open, communication between departments, just to make sure that everything everything works. In addition to that, the communication thing, where you know he's talking about uh, developing the shorthand, having worked with composers and again and again, being good to work with, it, it comes back, doesn't it? Again and again, yeah. that if you're good to work with, then you'll be used again and. You can create that shorthand. You can have that relationship where you can almost know what the composer expects and vice versa. And you can only get that from working with them often. It's just a a time thing. It it takes a long time to know what somebody's thinking and to to know the way in which they write. And, you know, the the composer might have a preference, i.e. they don't like, for that specific TV series, they might not like a low, meaty sound in the strings and you you might not know that, but then they they tell you, and then for the rest of the TV series, you kind of know that that's what they want. You'd have to keep going back and asking them, which you'd obviously, if you were working with someone new all the time, you'd have to keep explaining yourself. So that's the benefit mm. of having a team around you, 
a team that works yeah. that you work with often. Now, in addition to the interview, we have some bonus content at makingasoundtrack.com. And in one of the clips there, you and Alistair talk about Dorico, I suppose the new kid on the block in terms of music notation software. Alistair wasn't alluding to the fact that once they uh, have this as a, a kind of finished product, Sibelius and uh, Finale are just going to cease to exist. He was suggesting that, you know, competition is good. And if everyone ups their game because of the competition, then everyone benefits. Yeah, I think in any business, you don't want a, a monopoly effect. No. So, yeah, I think it's brilliant that those three notation softwares could exist next to each other. And obviously you've got StaffPad as well, which changed the, it's completely changing the way composers write. Um, I've got a friend who has recently just been writing in StaffPad. It generates the mock-up for you as you write. And then... I've only heard one from a staff pad thing but it was quite fun it was quite phenomenal it really. really is yeah so you know there's there's a changing landscape for those who do actually have notational skills because obviously they've just been forced all these years to write into a sequencer and now there's the opportunity to just write directly into staff pad and it generates the mock-up for you so all of these new bits of software coming out that will suit certain people you know it's it really opens the playing field up i think I mean that's it, isn't it? It's horses for courses. You'll you'll have to probably try several before you find the one that's right for you. But it, it's it is all about not everyone writes in the same way, and not everyone uses mm. the technology in the same way. So it's about the way that you use it and what's best for you. So certain programs are going to naturally be better than others. So yeah, competition is great. Having different versions out there of yeah. things. Um, to make sure that uh, everyone's catered for. What might be useful is if we put some links in the show notes pointing towards these different softwares and people can uh, go and have a look for themselves. Good. Wise idea. Good plan. Okay. Is, um, Dan, is um, is that a wrap? <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> oh, I had to force that one out. I think we just lost another 10 listeners there. Yep. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> That's a wrap. How do you find us? Makingasoundtrack.com will tell you all you need to know. Links to the podcast, social media links, and there's information about us there too. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it would make our day if you could give us a positive rating or review. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit that share button and recommend it to someone. That's it for this week. Next time, we'll be talking about the next part in that process of making an orchestral soundtrack, The Copyist. Copyist. Bye for now. Bye-bye. He lived for six months in an old lighthouse on the Norfolk Broads with a chimpanzee called Captain Popsicle, where they perfected a brilliant recipe for bouillabaisse.